Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Sukoon, a Muslim wellness podcast by Nasimka. My name is Farhana Kasamali and I will be your host through this journey we take together towards holistic wellness within an Islamic framework. Over the course of the next year, we will be seeking to 12 community leaders, experts, and mental health and wellness professionals who will enrich us with their healing words, stories, and personal journeys on the path to wellness. And they will say, praise to Allah who has removed from us all sorrow. Indeed, our Lord is forgiving and appreciative. Surah Fatir, Ayah 34. Join me every month as we begin these essential conversations to promote our community's well-being and healing and to begin to unravel the ways in which we as a community can heal individually, internally, and also collectively in unity. Please note, this episode contains themes of depression, anxiety, and other potentially triggering discussions. If you or someone you know is in crisis or in need of support, please look to our show notes for resources. This episode, I'm honored to introduce our guest for this month, Sayed Ali Abbas Rezawi. Dr. Sayed Ali Abbas Rezawi is a scholar and religious leader with a research interest in Islamic philosophy, mysticism, and comparative religion. He also serves as Director General and Chief Imam of the Scottish Ahl Bayt Society and Associate on the Project on Shiism and Global Affairs at Harvard University. Sayed is also the International Ambassador at Religions for Peace. Welcome, Sayed, and thank you for joining us. Lovely to be here. So my first question is, did you always kind of have an interest in religion? Like, was this a career path you wanted to take? Or did you ever think about doing something else when you were younger? Kind of how did you go into this field as a scholar? I wasn't one of those people who, I guess, from an early age felt that this was the career path for them. And, and I think even after I started studying religions, I still wasn't convinced that to become, you could say, a, uh, you know, to all intents and purposes, somebody who's a man of the cloth was for me. So I actually went to study, I started studies, this is going back maybe 23 years ago for myself. And I think my entire time of studying was in fact for myself, uh, because I had a thirst to come to know God. But no, if this wasn't my initial career path, in fact, if if I may be frank, my initial career path was to become a cricketer, professional cricketer. And as I developed and went on to play county cricket, I was actually yeah. injured. And because of that, as a, and I remember six months, I was really sick. Because um, one, one day I went running and I collapsed and the doctors know what the issue was. And I was suffering from vertigo at the time. And at the time, they couldn't analyze because everything was coming out clear. But there was an issue with my inner ear. And then I think probably that was caused by three times concussion whilst I used to play rugby once upon a time. But I think, yeah, so so my, my line was something else. And I ended up becoming something else. So I guess when I was about 17 years old, and here I was six months out thinking to myself, my career's over. Uh, there's no way I'm going to play for England anymore. And all my friends are making their way up. But at that moment, it didn't really bug me at all. Because from an early age, I think there was a belief in God there. And so at the age of 12, I guess I went through a period of crisis whereby I felt 
And in those days, at least in the United Kingdom, everything was geared towards atheism. So there I was trying to figure out, is there a God? And, um, you know, you come across this hadith of Mufaddal. Um, but the thing was, is that, okay, rationally you can prove God, but I wasn't feeling God. So I guess my entire journey from the age of 16 onwards was really about finding God. And for me, that's not a career path. That for me is, I guess, coming to know oneself. So from then onwards, and you know, in, in university initially, I studied history and then I went to study law and then comparative philosophy and theology and so forth. But education for me, university for me, I guess wasn't for a career, so to speak. Um, belief was that you're studying to find yourself um, to find God, to become a better human being, which we're still trying to do so. But in terms of um, what career path, I think maybe for about a couple of months, I toyed with the fact that, you know, let me, let me go into the city and work in the city. And then eventually mm -hmm. I realized that's not for me because it's, it's, it's seven days a week. You know, some of my friends are, well, they're not working seven days a week, but the work is so much that it seems like it's a seven-day week. So that, that really wasn't for me. Um, because, and there's a hadith on this, in fact, if you look at the Prophet and look at the Ayman and you and you look at what feels that they've told you to do, um, in summary, when you work for somebody, it's, you've given your time to somebody, um, it's almost as if you're a slave to that system. Whereas the Ayman and have taught a person to do tijara, to do business, um, to work for oneself, to be the master of one's own time. And this is why they've said that there's 10 parts of Baraka. Nine of them actually come by doing business. So I'm not saying you shouldn't do a job. No, please go ahead, work in the city, become a doctor, whatever it may be. But I, I guess the message that comes through, in particular when you read some of the older texts, is that one should be doing something on the side for themselves as well, be that property or be that some, some form of business. You know, you can certainly work in a government position, you're going to certainly work you know, as, as an accountant, as a doctor, whatever it may be. But the intention should be that one day maybe I'll own my own practice or you know, maybe do something on the side. So there's this quite, it's, quite, it's been emphasized quite a bit in our books. And in particular, um, there's also emphasis on, so, and again, the prophet's talking to the people of that time. So agriculture, you know, for example, farm, for example, um, there's a tradition that talks about water. Um, you know, if a person has water, well, they could do with that. So there is there is this push for self-sufficiency, um, in a sense, self-reliance. But anyhow, I guess it wasn't it wasn't a career choice for me. I was looking to find myself to find God. And in the process of that, it ended up where I've ended up. Yeah, that's amazing. As someone who went to school for a career and I'm now a CPA and doing the whole like, you know, nine to five job. Like it sounds amazing to be able to study and learn and improve yourself and get into a career kind of naturally that way. Um, so you've stated you're an Englishman. I've heard this myself, but you currently live in Scotland. Can you explain the work you do in Scotland? Well, I guess I was born an Englishman, but I've become a Scotsman now. So, so, that, so, so the way it's, it's similar to nationalism 
in Europe it's very different, in England it's very different, but over in Scotland, it's similar to America. You know, the minute you say you're American, you're American. The minute you have that passport, obviously we don't have a Scottish passport, but it's it's very similar. Yeah. So it's changing slowly, but one of the things about the SNP were that they were able to produce a kind of a nationalism which encompassed all faiths, religions. And that's it yeah. really worked off because there's where the opportunity came. So if, if you look throughout Europe, in particular after 2015, um, because I spent quite a time in Brussels, um, in particular in the parliament and so forth, um, I remember the last diet, well, speech that we had over lunch um, of Barroso and Van Rompuy, who at the time was the president of the parliament, Barroso, the president of the EC. And they indicated quite openly about the rise of the far right um, in the coming years. And in fact, I remember at the time they were talking about the EU, whether it's going to be together or not, because of the fact that there's a shift to the far right. European nationalism is based on skin color. It's based on many a time religion in certain parts of Eastern Europe. But the one thing that I noticed, and in England as well, there's a nationalism which means that if even if a person's third or fourth generation in the in England or in Wales, they're still regarded as the other. So the beauty about Scotland was and still is that when you say you're a Scot, you're a Scot. And that, I guess, you know, and again, I, I don't support any political party. Um, we're very apolitical, but one of, one of the successes, I guess, initially of the SNP was that they were able to bring together, and this is the Scottish National Party, they were able to bring together people of different faiths, religion, culture. And you, you see today, the First Minister is of Pakistani descent. Um, so that was one of the things, and this is this is what the opening was then. So I guess by chance, maybe now a decade ago, um, I came to Scotland. And though I do have some distant family in Scotland, but as it so worked out at the the time we had an interfaith event in the parliament and i was asked to come and speak and i guess everything started off from there a potential that there was you saw a wholesomeness a goodness in the people of scotland to take the message of imam hussein and when we saw that we thought no this this would be a tragedy if we don't go forward and express what imam hussein is to them and, and immediately we had a blood drive and today, to date now, it's the largest blood drive, faith-based blood drive in the country, where potentially 95% of people who come and get blood on are Muslims, 4% are Sunni, 1%, for example, are Shia. So you can see that it's not just a blood drive uh, for Muslims, but it's for all, to save lives. And and there you, see, you notice that the Scottish people actually responded to that very well. And they all came, political leaders came, party leaders came. You know, just a couple of days ago, I was watching. So I'm, I'm not able to. I've not been able to get back to Scotland yet through journey because of the journeys that I'm on at the moment. But I saw on the Facebook team had uploaded that, for example, the Mandir, the high priest from the Mandir, came. He was there donating blood. The Chinese community, um, and most of them from Hong Kong, had come. They were giving blood. Um, some of the bishops, the Archbishop, Catholics, and Protestant side, which is really the Episcopalians and the Church of Scotland, uh, they were coming, they were giving blood. And each one of them respects the vision of Imam Hussein. And I think that's the most important thing to, for us 
to show at least the people of Scotland and from there the world what say the Shahada is, who he is, what he symbolizes. Because there's a reason why she has to love him today. Love here, the English language doesn't cover it in the way that it should do. But I guess there's a difference between muhabba and muwadda. Muhabba is an emotion, but muwadda basically, and if you look at Ravada Swahani, if you look at some of the lexicons, muwadda comes from wadada, watada, and it goes back to from wadada to watada. The best example I can give is what Allah says in the Quran, that he's put the mountains, like if you nail something into the ground, the mountains are so deeply entrenched into the ground that they can't be shaken. So based on that, that's what Mawadda is. Mawadda's link is such that it's unshakable. It's not just an emotion. It's a spiritual connection. Because you love that, which, you know, if I said cry over Mr. X, you wouldn't be able to cry over Mr. X. You know, have you seen Mr. X? No, do you know Mr. X? But Imam Hussein, regardless of the fact that we've not seen him, known him, whatever it may be, but there's a spiritual connection, and that's based on Mawadda. So based on that, I, you know, we as a team wanted, as uh, Shias of Scotland wanted, other people to benefit from what Imam Hussein is. And so from then onwards, we started to introduce, to go introduce ourselves. And I remember in two days once, we went to all the religious leaders you could think of in Edinburgh and Glasgow meeting upon meeting, just introducing ourselves. And then from then onwards, we built a repertoire such that when the time came to introduce Imam Hussein Day on the 12th of October as a national day, all the faiths came together to support that. Parliament came to, you know, members of the parliament, people like Bill Kidd, SMP, who was at the time the chief whip of the SMP. And in fact, even to this day, not just the SMP, but the conservatives as well, uh, very supportive of us. And, you know, just recently with the Afghan crisis, it was actually the Conservative Party at the time, the chairman of the Conservative Party, um, who helped us to be able to get at that time to number 10, to be able to help those Afghan refugees. And after that, the Ukrainian refugees who came in and, you know, we were able to work with at least 100% of them. In fact, all of the refugees who came, Afghan refugees, not just to house them, but to give them uh, materials and what the essentials for life. And again, I'm very grateful to the Jewish community who also were helping us side by side to do that. And you can see the repertoire that we have. So over in Scotland, the way that we're working is, is a social movement, almost, you could say, to help people, whether that be refugees, the neighbour, the other, to help people to become or integrate them into society, meaning help them with jobs, housing, um, education. So all of these things we're working on. Um, you know, one of the things that, again, people see Imam Hussein when they, when people in Scotland, they look at our food tribe, for example. So they know if you're a Shi'i, if you're a follower of Imam Hussein, you're going to feed people. Um, and they have this idea in their mind, which is, I think, is the correct idea to have. You know, as opposed to you go to other parts of the world, you go to France, for example, where I also spend a bit of time. Uh, you say Muslim and they say terrorist immediately. But at least in Scotland, when you say Imam Hussein, people think food, they think blood, they think shelter, they think education. So that's really our work. You know, that's that's what we're there to do, and it's charitable work. You know, we're, we're all there, as they say, pro bono. None of us, actually, none of my team members get a wage for what they do. We spend at least ninety percent of our time giving our time for the sake of what we feel is the right thing to do. You know, if I was to say in the service of Imam Hussein, Imam Hussein doesn't need my service. I need to serve Imam Hussein to survive. 
Imam Hussein can have somebody else to serve him. So it's a tawfiq from Allah. And this is why I would say from all the countries in the world that I've been to, I believe Scotland is a country that's holding the flag of Imam Hussein today. And the people respond in that way as well. People love Imam Hussein in Scotland. Muslim, non-Muslim. And I guess that's what we want to do, to keep on expressing, explaining to the people what this symbolizes and why it's important for us. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think just in the United States, like I don't see that Shia representation in government. Like if there's even Muslim representation, it's generally of the Ahlus and faith. Maybe I'm wrong. I know we have a few Shias that participate, but the name of Imam Hussein, there isn't a lot of representation, I feel. Um, we don't do enough or we aren't able to do enough. Like I don't, like in Houston, I don't know that the Sunnis and Shias unite for too much. I don't know that the Shia Jamaats of Houston unite for too much. Um, it sounds inspiring that you've been able to do it. I'm just, I wonder if it's ever, maybe we're just too divided in the States or in the West. I'm not sure. I don't think so. I think that you're proportionally represented at government level, at least high high government level. I think there's yeah. sufficient there. Maybe they don't know each other, but you know, you have people in the White House who are Shia in Biden's cabinet or Shia, in Biden's office, Mrs. President's office or Shia. You have people in the State Department, people in the Department of Defense, Department of Justice. I think that people are, I think what's required from my humble perception from everything that I've seen is leadership. Because I think leadership is the gel that brings everyone together. And I would certainly say that in the United States, you have a lot of resources, many educated people, and I think that it wouldn't be as much of an issue to unite people, but I think goodwill and correct leadership is important. So I, I wouldn't say, I actually would say that you're probably much further down the line than we were when we started. You've got okay. all of got the recipe. You just require somebody to mix it. And I think with, if you look at the Shia faith for 1100 years, we've had a very strong leadership. But the problem at the moment, at least in the Western world, is the fact that there's not such a strong leadership, Shia leadership, which is there. And when I say strong Shia leadership, I don't just mean clerical leadership. It has to be a horizontal leadership. If, for example, you have a civic person who's on top of the ulama, that's not going to work because we've seen it. It doesn't do it. Or if you have one alim or scholars on top of civic people, that doesn't work either. You've seen it. You should, you should, your states is full of that. What you need is, a, in my opinion anyway, a horizontal structure whereby there's a respect for the clerical side or the religious side and the civic side. And if a marriage like that was to take place, then I feel that there would be more chances of success. And you know, let's be honest, you will require a clerical leader at some point. That's just the nature of the way that Shiism has worked from the time of Sayyid Murtada and Sayyid Rabi. So, or even Sheikh Saduk, if you go back all the way, up to the Sheikh Mufid and so forth. So, you know, and I guess probably this is why Islam, or at least, in fact, no, both Sunni and Shi Islam have never really had the concept of a shura. It's always been one leader, regardless of whether that leader was correct or not. But leadership, I guess, is important. And the ability for a leader to empower his people as well, because, you know, you can say to me, well, look, leadership can, many a time, at least in the Islamic world, leads to dictatorship. Um, and again, we don't believe in dictatorship, but What's important is that somebody who empowers and inspires people. And inshallah, we pray that one day um, you'll have that in the States. 
uh, and inshallah, maybe it's proving. Remember, you're you're a very young community as well. We're old. We're an older community. So where I was born and brought up in England, our community, the they came over in the 60s or 70s mostly. Scotland, they came over in the 40s. So imagine after 80 years, you know, there are people who are 70 years old in Scotland who were born in Scotland. So, you know, there's four generations. So if after four generations, now they've got their act together, you know, so that mm. should give you hope as well that maybe in 20, 30 years' time, you'll develop leaderships, structures and so forth will do the same thing. Or even faster than that. Who knows? Maybe, you know, one of your one of the kids who are coming up in 10 years' time, they'll be a leader. Or in fact, maybe there's a leader there which hasn't been explored yet. So yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, I, I'm hopeful for the United States, that, you know, at least in terms of the sheer leadership. I think it's a, it's a great country. You're allowed to worship freely. Um, in many parts of the world, you're not allowed to worship freely. You know, you, you're allowed to observe all of your tenants, halal meat. You go to Brussels, you can't slaughter Poland, other places in Europe, issues of slaughter. Issues of circumcision now, which is taking place. I still remember a couple of years ago, uh, the Jewish community, the Christian community and ourselves, we went over to Iceland to have the bill repealed. So you're living in a country which is free to be able to worship, to be able to do good. And I think that needs to be to able to protest. Your people protest, all sorts of things are there. So, you know, so I think, I think it shouldn't be too hard. I think you've got all the recipes there, inshallah. Eventually, soon, hopefully, you'll, you'll have leaders or leaders to bring you together to take you to that next stage. Yeah, inshallah. Uh, so much of your academic work centers around the concepts of love and mysticism and theology. Was there a particular reason you gravitated towards these themes? And how do you think they play into the Shia faith? And along with that, I think the, the hard part when I was kind of looking up how you got your PhD and what you studied, like the, the intertwining of love into our faith is more spoken about now I think like than when I was growing up like in Dubai we had you know the Urdu Molanas who spoke at a higher volume toward at you and now there is more about love and love of Allah and love of God I think it's coming up more but sometimes I feel like we also hear well if he if he loves you he'll test you more so as you're trying to go through these tests of life big ones small ones feeling that pain we're told, well, that means he loves you more. Like, how do you, how did you gravitate towards the concepts of love? And then how do you reconcile that point that we all kind of face? Okay, so let's, let's unpack a bit of that. I think Islam has always focused around love. It's not something that's been foreign. The fact is we've got to look at it circumstantially why it's developed in the way that it's developed. So I guess the there's always been two strands. One is more of the literal strand, which is more the textbook strand, um, the letter of the law. There's another side, you could say, which is the spirit of the law. And and we find both of this in tradition as well. Both of them have grown up together. So if you see prominence is the Vahir side, which is the more literalist side. But if you go back even 1,100 years or so, you still have a mystical side or a spiritual side. That spiritual side if, is geared to as a love of God, because without love, there is no way you'd be able to do or to go for the full length. You know? So people who pray to Allah 
let's say, on time and they do everything that they need to do, if they do it very well, it's because there's an element of love involved within that. There's a love of God in there. Love of, and when you look at it, the fact that Allah has told you to have mawadda with Ahl Bayt is in and of itself a stepping stone towards the love of God. Ishqa haqiqi, you have Ishqa majazi. Ahl Bayt's love, I wouldn't say majazi. I think it's a, it's a springboard towards Ishqa haqiqi, which is Allah's love itself. Ahl Bayt's love is Allah's love. And here, mawadda, not muhabba in and of itself. It's not just a feeling. It's entrenched in, in grossing your heart. It's almost as if you've gone deep into the into the kind of the, the ocean, all the way down in, in the love of God. So I think there is sufficient enough in there. But okay, why now? Why not before? Well, I guess more so now because I think it's in many ways some. Well, I guess it is a knee jerk reaction to the climate that we live in. You know, from the sixties onwards, you've seen people gravitate towards different types of mysticism. And they've gravitated to different traditions. And those traditions not only center around the concept of love, but it also centers around inner peace. Both of them go hand in hand. And in this way, people, if they shift over, um, I think Islam has also reacted to that. There is a quite a volume of Sufi tradition within Islam. And many a time this tradition is regarded as Sunni not realizing that actually the Sufi tradition is actually coming out of the Shi uh, school. And if you look at much of Sufi practices or authentic Sufi orders, much of what they're saying is actually found within Shi tradition, be it in our Athkar, Awrad, or Dua, and so forth. So I think... Much of, again, this topic of love also comes down to your academic. You know, when I say you, I mean Western academia as well. So much of the work which is being, which is being produced in, in Islam, and it has been, let's say, go back 100 years, focuses around mysticism and by, by proxy, it's come back to the concept of love. If you look at, you go to Washington or Virginia, you'll see Sedasen Nasser, for example. Uh, you know, and his entire perennial school across the United States, across Henry Corbin. Well, let's go back to Henry Corbin. Henry Corbin, you know, all of these thinkers who are talking about Islam, whether from a theological perspective or philosophical perspective, much of it is not just fiqh anymore. Well, actually, it never has been other than Robert Gleevel. You know, individuals like that, the vast majority of people who are now discussing Islam, maybe that's by design or academic design, but they're talking more on the mystical dimensions of the religion. So what I would what I would say here is, is that there is an emphasis, emphasis there. And then you also notice is that there's been more of an emphasis in the Hausa as well towards this Irfan, going back to this, this concept of Irfan or Ma'rifah, Ma'rifah of Allah. So that's one thing. So And circumstances change, things evolve. They were Orafah back in the day. They didn't come out or they didn't teach because of the climate in Najaf and so forth, or later in Qom. And then, you know, for example, it's more prevalent now to be studying these things. So climate as well. And there's a whole history why it was, why it wasn't. But you look at some of the great scholars said, said Murtaza Kashmiri, for example, the grandfather of this, this they say Murtaza Kashmiri is married to the daughter. So, for example, great mystic, big Arif of Najaf, the school of Najaf for a while actually ran through him in terms of Irfan. Then, for example, Sudan Khadi Talatabai, they have their school. Or, for example, you go to Mashhad, 
said Musa Zarabadi, although they didn't believe in philosophy and the Maktabit Tafkik, but at the same time, they believed in this kind of spiritual dimension. Or, for example, you know, Buddha Qazwin itself, where Musa Zarabadi is actually from, people like Mushtada Qazwini and Hashim Qazwini, both of whom were, I believe, teachers of Atul Sistani as well. So, or at least Mushtada Qazwini was. So, in this way, there are different makatib of Irfan, you could say. And the focus of Irfan is what? Jazb. Right, this suluk and this jazb. Suluk is wayfaring. Jazb is all of a sudden you're just bought in by God. Jazb requires love. There's no other way around it. You have to. There has to be full annihilation to the love of God. So when you now talk about tests, when you're jazb in Allah, you don't see any tests. So true love yeah. is you don't see tests. You know, it's like, okay, you look at most of these mystics. All of them, if you look at their life, it's a very difficult life that they have. One doesn't see it. You know, the they see trial and tribulation as a form of stripping and a form of removing oneself from the attachments of the world. It's like Amir al-Mu'mineen. By the time that day came when Ibn Muljim hit him, Amir al-Mu'mineen had stripped himself of everything worldly. The only thing that was left worldly was his life itself. He couldn't have taken that himself as suicide. So you found that Ibn Muljim came by hitting the imam, completed the imam in terms of the fact that now he's completely mujarrad. And this is why So imam was successful in that respect. And look at where he was. You know, you can't kill a middle mu'min from the front, but he was in sajda. The only way you can kill imam is if he's completely majzub in Allah, which he was on the night of Qadr and sajda at the time of Fajr. You know, the, the best, you could say, position, the best time, which is Fajr time, best night, which is little Qadr. So... In this respect, I think a person who is majzub or a person who is truly a lover doesn't see any tests. For them, it doesn't make a difference. It's like when Qadi's son died and his wife was crying and he says, you know, why she... He was saying to one of his students why she just cried and say, you know, I can see the soul of the son is there with her next to her. For example, stuff like that. But, you know, anyhow, the ability to love Allah or the intensity of loving God allows you to go through any worldly trial and tribulation. Why do we have them, though? Because when you claim to love Allah, by default, what's going to happen is that God will test you. If I'm saying la ilaha illallah, I'm basically saying I'm negating every other worldly attachment. And if I say it enough, then God will say, fine, if you're, if you're truthful, I'm going to test you. And when I'm going to test you, I'm going to test you with all of those attachments that you may have. And then you're going to go through pain then sometimes. But that's a process of detachment if a person is sincere on this pathway. Now, for the average person who goes through trial and tribulation and says, oh, Allah's testing me, Allah's not, Allah, we're not big enough for Allah to test us like that. Much of, as I always say, 90% of it's caused by ourselves many a time. Actions lead to reactions. That 10% maybe, which is from Allah, then Allah gives the ability for a person to overcome and raises them up. So you know what a test from Allah is. When the test of Allah comes, is there's actually a level of inner peace and Allah helps you to get to that next level. Many a time it's just because of our own actions and deeds that well, then we dump on Allah because we're stuck in a position that we shouldn't have been stuck in. So sorry to be brutally honest, but many a time that... No, it's, yes. um, so even if I accept, like, okay, I brought this test to myself. I did something wrong, whatever it is. Does it mean that I don't love Allah if I don't see it? as a test like if i say okay Allah, i brought this to myself but maybe you can help me out of it like yeah, it, it's tough. hard to go through a test and not say 
this is a test or this is a punishment or, oh, you know, I brought this on myself. To realistic, does that make sense? No, and I get what you're saying. I don't think you should ever say that you brought about it yourself. I think the best thing is a person should repent. Um, and, you know, we have multiple traditions on this, that sometimes a person has an issue with a risk. And you've been told, more. person can't get married. I've seen this all in My daughter can't recite. So, you know, istighfar salawat, for example. So in times of difficulty, istighfar and salawat actually removes many of the hurdles. God forbid if there's something that we've done and we've not realized it. Because da'i kumail is there. It's very, it's very open in the sense that you're asking Allah to remove or forgive those of the noob which stops du'a from going up, which brings down Bala and so forth. So that tells you that there are things that we do which do that. The best methodology, you've got istighfar or tawbah, which is khas, you've got tawbah, which is arm. Arm is istighfar, but there's other formulas of tawbah that the imams have given, which actually the benefit of which, in fact, increases your risk. Um, so there, there are things like this that one can repent ask Allah for help. I don't think at any stage you should think Allah doesn't love you. Yeah. Allah Allah has created you and he loves you more than your parents will ever love you. And this term 70 times is, you know, it's it's a number. But what 70 times is, it's very difficult to quantify. No, Allah loves everyone. And and this is why you find that there's a place where Allah says, there wasn't I your good Lord? And this is, and if you look at the dua of the Imam, and you know, this. Sometimes I always almost feel like that as a, as a mother, when a mother says to a child, you know, you're late tonight, where were you, son or daughter? You, if you write it down, it doesn't make any difference. But if you hear your mother say, there's a lot of pain in there. And sometimes when you look at the verse where, or where Allah says, that wasn't I, you good Lord. And you think to yourself that, no, Allah's given everything to us. And here the du'as of the imams are very powerful. One du'a that everybody tends to recite, Ilahi kaifa ad'uka wa ana ana. How can I even stop to cut my hopes in Allah? If I'm sinful and if I'm evil and whatever I may be, and if I have embarrassment in me that I can't ask from Allah, I should always remember if I'm me, Allah's Allah. Go to Allah and ask Him for help. And if you look at the dua, it continues and it says, Allah, you gave me when I didn't ask. Now that I'm asking, how is it possible that you're not going to give me? And you showered mercy upon me when I didn't ask for mercy. How's it possible now that I ask for mercy, you're not going to shower it upon me? So I would never stop in supplicating to God. I would never, ever believe that God doesn't love you. God loves you more than you love yourself. So because God loves you so much, always keep that link. And with that sincerity and that link and that conviction in Allah, you'll see you overcome, at least in my humble opinion, what I've seen, the ability to overcome all difficulty. No, that's beautifully said. Um, so I think sometimes what we struggle with is sometimes, you know, they say if you love, and I may get this wrong, if you love the creator, you should love his creations. And sometimes I think it's the human to human, the people interaction sometimes that tests a lot of us more. How would you go about starting to bring that love of Allah in? Because what you said right now sounds so good, but I know if I go out and someone says something and I feel slighted or I feel hurt or whatever it is, um, I'll start kind of going through it in my head and be like, oh, this person's like this and this person's like this. 
And I think we've seen it right now. It's already next week. A lot of people have been, you know, messaging and saying, oh, forgive me for this and forgive me for that. In my head, I'm like, that's great. But how's it going to be when you get back? And I feel like on the one hand, it's so wrong. But on the other hand, it's just brutally honest. Like to get away from that pettiness in life. Like, do you think we have it right? How we're going about things like the idea of forgiveness and. I think we've got to be realistic. Many a time we look at the best example, which is the imam. But I think one has to evolve as well. So, you know, for example, there's a hadith that says that I don't worship Allah for a heaven or, you know, for splendors of heaven and or for the fear of hell, but I worship Allah to be worshipped. There's no harm in worshipping Allah out of fear of hell. You've got to start off somewhere on the pathway. There's no harm in worshipping Allah as a tajir. You've got to start somewhere. Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen is talking but his maqam is, you know, Imam al-Arifin. There's a key. I think sometimes I think things need to be put into context. So yeah. you start off with worshipping Allah. Oh, can I have 100% ikhlas in my prayer? There's no way possible. It's only Imam al-Masum who's 100% sincerity is mukhlas and at the same time uh, has the ability 100% to focus in their prayer. For us, we've been told pray awwalawat, for example. So for us, yes, okay, coming back to now your question. Remember, when a person makes you upset or angry, what you're angering is, or what's becoming angry is your ego. If a dog is barking at you, you're not going to get upset. Why? Because you don't see the dog at the same level as you. So the dog can bark as much as it wants, or a cat can meow. You might get irritated, but you're not going to take it seriously. And you're just going to walk away and forget about it. So when a person comes and they insult you or say something, what's actually taken a hit? Actually, ego has. And because your ego, the Mara's taken a hit, and then all of a sudden, oh, they've offended me. Fine, they've offended you, sir. They've broken your bones? No, they've offended me. Or, you know, they've cut me up when I was driving. Or you know, And I know I'm simpl simplifying it a little bit, but sometimes I think that the best antidote for ego is to make it simplistic. Because if I pack it up and pat it up, no, you know, you should be like this. And of course, you know, there's a self-sufficiency that you have and oh you're an individual you're not going to get to the core let's get to the core of the issue the issue is, is that your ego has been bruised right yeah. you, somebody insults you it's an ego issue many a time okay yeah it's offensive i can understand people's threshold as such you know people some people get offended on a small thing some people get offended on a big thing but ultimately it's ego do you ever see the imam getting offended over something the only time he gets offended is you if or when somebody violates god or if they're an enemy of god and even then, his offense is in a personal issue. Look at what Imam does with Marhab. You know, for example, in the battles, uh, somebody, you know, the warrior spits on his face. So what does the Imam do? Takes a step back. Imam is teaching us. Obviously, the Imam doesn't get angry for himself. The man's, he himself is writing a Nahjul Balagha to Imam Hassan. Ya Bunayya min al-Walid al-Fani. The man is Fani himself. He doesn't have an ego. But the fact of the matter is, is that you know, here the Imam takes a step back and people ask, why did you just take a step back? He said, well, I was doing it for Allah. It spat on me, so I took a step back just in case. There could be an element of I in that. So if you look at the Imams, Sistani or others, they don't do things for their ego. You know, recently, that letter of Ayatollah Sistani was forgiving immediately. Something happened to him, I forgive you. So in this way, I think we need to be of the same ilk the ability to forgive. And, you know, and you're right, you'll end up getting, you know, this is weird. 
a couple of months back, got off the moon with this guy comes in, you know, I really want to apologize. I was backbiting about you 10 years ago. And you think to yourself, okay, well, you don't need to why are you coming to me and telling me about that? You know, it, it doesn't warrant it. Pray for me. Pray for me. You know, pray for me. That's it. Let's let's move on from that. So you know, I guess I guess many a time we, we make it complicated. I wouldn't give it that much focus. If 15 people message it, can you, can you forget? Okay, whatever, let's move on. If, we, if, if a person has time to worry about other people, they're not spending enough yeah. time on themselves trying to evolve. And I think if we evolve ourselves, you know, all these sayings that people say, you point one finger, three fingers point at you. Well, look, there's a hakika to all of this. Let's, let's work on ourselves. Let's start building ourselves. And I think that within building yourself, you won't have time. At least I don't have time to worry about, you know, who's backbiting about me or backbiting about you or anybody else. You know, that yeah. they're doing that. That's their own fail. You know what? They're burning themselves. The weird thing is, is that if you wrong somebody, you are actually burning in hell there and then. It's not on the day of judgment. You're creating hell for yourself. A person who backbites is never at peace. Or for example, if you take somebody's huck, you steal something or you you know you're disrespectful to somebody or you show jealousy to somebody or you hurt somebody who are you actually hurting in the long run you're hurting yourself and you're corroding your soul and you're removing the light from you which attaches yourself back to the issue of allah so you know i think i think it's important really to look at it from that perspective that forget them let's let's you know let, let's move on and let's focus on ourselves kind of thing that, that's the way that i see it I think those are the questions that always get me in q and I'm sure you've gotten this one. It's like, and I just got it the last few and I was in. Um, someone asked, I said, well, will Mother Teresa go to heaven? I said, what's it to you if she goes to heaven? Like, kind of worry about yourself. How would Amolana kind of know if that's going to happen? But it seems I, like... That's so gonna go to heaven. Huh? I said, who's going to go to heaven and help? They ask, is Mother Teresa going to go to heaven because she's not a Shia Muslim? Like, that always comes up in a Q&A whenever I'm in it. Like, I don't know what... It's, it's interesting because obviously, because the, the person sitting up at the pulpit probably has a direct line to God, so you can ask him directly. She, you know, at the end of the day, Allah's the judge. Whoever's going I to mean, heaven and help. If you have a direct line, I want to know if I'm going to heaven, not if Mother Teresa's going to heaven. I think that's a better question. Everybody's everybody's entitled to their own fate. You see what I mean? You know, at the, at the end of the day, who goes to heaven and hell is not up to us. That's up to Allah. All I know is that yeah. I need to work hard for me to get to heaven, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I think when, when you were talking about you know, how we interact with others. There was that quote that came to mind, you know, I think it's by Victor Frankl. And it's like between like what happens, what someone says to you. And by the time you respond, there's, there's a pause there that you can take. There's a time. And, and in that pause, I'm, I'm butchering the quote, but in that pause, that's where you take your power back. So it could be almost anything. And even if you do feel like reacting strongly, saying something, whatever it is, you have that pause to kind of just stop. And I think in an environment right now, like when we're constantly go, 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 there's never enough time. you got to get it out there. If you want to respond, you better respond now. But I think what we forget is if we just slow down a bit, maybe that is the action item that, you know, I can take and our listeners can take is that just pause a bit 
just kind of ground yourself a little. Would you kind of agree with that method? Of no, I think you hit the nail. I think you summarized it very well. And what you're saying actually is a very powerful Kabbalistic theory, in fact. And as you know, Kabbalah, both Jewish and then later on, its Christian strands have influenced quite a lot of follow quite a lot of Western thinkers. So no, I think you're completely right. And the concept that you just raised actually is found within the Kabbalah. Um, and it's found with some of the more primary books that tell you how to first combat yourself or come come to realize your own self. So I think you're 100% right in what you're saying. But just to answer that Mother Teresa one, because it's, it's an interesting one, because somebody might say, well, he's copped out of it. Is she going to go to heaven or hell or not? Uh, Shayd Mutahri has a good discussion on this. If a person, so here his discussion is, look, you know, again, where she is, alhamdulillah, we found, at least for all intents and purposes for us, the pathway. But if a person has sincerity and yaqeen in something, even if a person was atheist and had yaqeen in that, on the day of judgment, if he said, Allah, well, these religious people can prove it to me. The question is, yeah. is Allah going to... Many of us say, no, it's not going to, because you had 100% yaqeen. There's one thing lying to yourself. There's one thing you know the truth and you lie to yourself. Or you know the truth yeah. and you don't follow. Or you know the truth, but it's not um, fashionable enough. But there's another thing where a person has yaqeen on something. And if Mother Teresa, for argument's sake, has a yaqeen, 100% that what she's doing correct, then why wouldn't she find a way to heaven? Heaven have different maratib to it as well. There's different stages to it. You know, the highest Ahlul Bayt. So when we find that the, you know, if, if I put it like this, non-human, so to speak, who will be at a particular level of heaven, whether it's, you know, as a, the uh, the dog of us as Habul Kab or whatever it may be, then why wouldn't human beings be able to get to a level of heaven? You know, if they had certainty and they had yaqeen in what they're doing, and that's a particular argument that Shaykh Mutahiri brings forward. Now, that's different from the plural, this idea of pluralism in the way that some people interpret it, but pluralism is a huge umbrella where people interpret it in different ways. So, yes, the highest. You know, you could say Ma'rifah of Ahlul Bayt, Ma'rifah of Allah, purpose of humanity to get to that level of Ma'rifah. But the simple person, the ordinary person who may not ever attain that, if that simple person, let's say, is living in the middle of nowhere, all he hears on the newspaper or, or, or what she reads in the, in the papers and hears on television is that Muslims are bad people. If they never come to Islam because of that and they've searched for the truth and they have yaqeen on something, then why would Allah hold them against that? So, yeah, I, I do believe that heaven is that it's a different ballgame altogether. And this is why it's not about heaven and hell for, for our top scholars. It's not about that. That's too too limited for them. It's actually about liqa. It's about union with Allah. It's about getting to that maqam where they can do mushahid of Ahl bayt up there or wherever, wherever they end up, wherever we go to say up there. But no, it, you know, up there would be physical. But yeah, in the immaterial realm, wherever that may be, it's it's more about the higher purpose. And this is where now Amir al-Mu'mineen's quote comes into play then that it's it's not about tijara or it's not about you know trading with god or it's not about fearing god and in, in essence it's not about heaven and hell it's about allah for the sake of allah yeah no that's a good point um i think with our rain coming up so quickly you know i've been with all the lectures going on, i've been trying to say like how do we instill that love that imam hussein had 
into us because, you know, when I look at Garbala and, you know, we're hearing all, all the reenactments and the stories kind of and reading the books. And while Imam Hussein on the masculine side was doing the fighting, I kind of see more of the love of Allah from what he did. And then when I look at Bibi Zainab, although she's, you know, on the feminine side, I don't see it as, I guess, what I should see the normal feminine side. I see it more as strength, like how she spoke up. Like both those, the love and the strength are on the opposite sides of what I would normally, what we're taught as gender norms, I guess. Um, how do you instill that love of Allah that Imam Hussein had and also just the strength that Bibi Zainab had? in today's day and age when I think we're up against a lot. If you look at Santa Zainab, other than raising a sword, she did everything else that Imam Hussein did. Yeah. You know, so, and even then, on the night of Ashura, she did take a broken spear, according to some tradition, to protect her family, to protect her people. But I guess both understood that there is no limitation, in fact, here in terms of gender. Yes, they all, so both of them did what was necessary for them to do in accordance with their gender. Man being protector and, you know, going out and protecting. Uh, but at the same time, I think that both of them were extremely brave. In fact, extremely brave is an understatement. They were brave to the maximum you could be brave and they were patient to the maximum you could be patient. And all of this was really developed because of the love of God that they had. So I guess mm -hmm. how do we connect with that? Well, I think it has to be first and foremost with purity of heart because you can never actualize pure love unless your, you, your heart itself is not pure. And I think that these nights, in particular these 10 nights leading to the day of Arbain are very important because in these 10 nights, you know, when you come to the majalis of Sayyid al-Shuhada, every majlis that you go to, what it's meant to do is reinforce that love. That love comes from the heart. And so the heart needs to be connected every time you're there in a majlis. And at the same time, what exemplifies love is tears as well. Imam Hussein wasn't afraid to cry to his Lord. Say the Zainab again to, his, to her Lord. You know, there's a connection with God that they have. Amir al-Mu'mini cried and cried and cried in front of Allah in particular when he was in the mahrab. And it's interesting because mahrab comes from harb, comes from war itself. He was warring there when he was standing and praying. So it's, 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 it's beautiful how, you know, this symbology in the language that's used. But I think the best and the fastest way of reaching God and the love of God is actually for your tears. And this is, this is what practically our ulama have said practically when they cry okay you could cry reading a dua but many people won't understand it and because obviously it may not be their native language but you can talk your own language you can supplicate yourself to allah and at the same time what the tragedy of imam hussein does is it breaks us down as well that brings out those human emotions because we come to understand humanity in us and for everyone who cries over imam hussein it means that we haven't actually been desensitized yet because after all the atrocities that you see on a regular basis bombarded on social media, we should be desensitized. You know, they say that when a butcher for the first time butchers, you know, for mm -hmm. example, an animal, whatever it may be, 
their hands and feet may be shaking, but by the hundredth time, they could be talking on the phone and butchering and it makes no difference to them. So within time, human beings become desensitized. Perhaps that's why it's makruh, by the way, to go into that field. But there's a movement that, you know, within this actions, what it leads to desensitization. Similarly, certain actions lead to hardening of the heart. So coming to mourn for Sayyid al-Shuhada as an antidote to remove that hardening of the heart and to remove desensitization, to refocus us, rechannel us. And, and I think this is why these 10 nights are important. I think the whole thing is a miracle itself. It's actually quite powerful in the way that it reverses some of the negativity found in human beings if used properly. So these 40 days every year is like a detox. And it almost spiritually detoxes you if you use it in the right way so that your heart is soft, your love increases, you, your vision is clearer. And at the same time, you're more accepting, you know, you're more merciful. All of these things happen because of this one gathering of Imam Hussein and how we build up to it. So I think it's quite exciting times that we're coming in. I think that these couple of days are very important leading up to Arbain because I think what it will do is if a person utilizes it properly, it prepares the heart for the love of Allah. Yeah. It was funny, we were, I was standing outside um, the parking lot of Masjid and, and I was talking to a friend and, and she had just moved from overseas and I said, it doesn't even feel like we're in Houston. Like, she was like, yeah, you're right. I just, I wouldn't even know I was in America at this point. Like, just because we had just come from, you know, Amajas and it was, you know, the morning and everything else and you don't even know you forget almost like you come out of the manjalas and you, you you almost forget where you are what you were supposed to do and everything um but yeah this was this was really good i have so much to think about i think with everything that we chatted about but i just to end with um a slightly more fun question do you have a favorite football team I don't know. I, I, I stopped supporting a football team many years ago. But yeah, I, I used to remember watching Serie A, Italian football, which is quite decent at the time. I support AC Milan. Um, but I won't tell you which British team I support because then otherwise I might not be invited to certain centres. And... Yeah, <laughs> that's a smart answer. I'll say that. So thank you so much, Sayyid, for our discussion today. Uh, before we let you go, where can people see more of your work? More in, in what respect in terms of our civic um, work? So if they would like to listen to your lectures, like do you post them? Okay, I'll be speaking here if you want to come. Anything like I that? I don't really post anything online. And as you, as you know, I'm a very quiet per person. So, you know, if, if, if I happen to be lecturing at somebody's centre, please do come and listen. Um, but yeah. aside from... I don't have a resource where I'm going to upload my lectures. I think there's enough lectures out there from other people that people can listen to. Okay, sounds good. Inshallah, we will see you around um, on this side of the world soon. Join us again next month. Thank you again to our listeners for joining us on Sukhuna, a Muslim wellness podcast by Nasimko. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website, www.nasimko.org. To keep this vital work going, please consider donating under General Fund. Your contributions could lend you a special shout out on our next show. Until next time, Salaam Alaikum.